Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about multiple intelligences, creating a connected society and culture. My first guest is Fred Dust. He was a senior partner and global managing director at international design firm IDEO, a leading voice and practitioner of human-centered design and networked innovation. Fred helps organizations in media, finance, retail, and health confront disruptions stemming from shifts in consumer behavior, social trends, economic pressures, and new technology. Prior to IDEO, Dust worked as an architect and spent eight years working with independent artists and major art organization. Fred chairs the board of Parsons and sits on the board of the New School NPR and the Sundance Institute. Fred lives in New York City and he's in the house talking about his book, Making Conversation, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication. Welcome, Fred. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, it wasn't a choice, Lisa. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> well, you know, I think we probably should reveal how we how we came together because there's a little bit of like geography, a little bit of serendipity. And I think this really speaks to some of these elements that you're talking about. You know, it's it's sort of true. I mean, as we were just talking about the fact that, like, we we sort of we were almost virtually neighbors, like like kind of giving the fact that we both come from Los Angeles, like a like as we said, like an hour and a half isn't that far away. But it's a um, I do think that one of the things that and this I've been finding this as I've been out having conversations about the book, making conversation, is that the reality is like once you start to reach out you find the world is much more interconnected than you think. And I, I think what we just discovered is that we were, in fact, more interconnected than we might have imagined. In right? multiple lifetimes, right? As exactly. it, through architecture, exactly. <laughs> through, exactly. the, through IDEO, <laughs> now through, here. Through IDEO? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's, you live really close to us. I mean, so it's like, it's it's the kind of magic that you only really get if you're out there having conversations, like, constantly. You know, it's like, an, and, and, and kind of take it on to yourself to be like out there kind of, like, exploring the world um, with as much curiosity as possible, so... And yet making conversations for some people is very anxiety producing. You know that that the fear of the unknown or maybe looking foolish or being accepted. I mean, talk a little bit about, you know, why it's scary for people to make conversations. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because as I kind of talk about it, like when I think about like why we should get creative about thinking about conversation, let's be clear. It's not every conversation. So it's not like 
chit-chat. It's not gossip. It's not like whispering, like, you know, that's with friends or like, it's, it's like what I'm mostly am focusing on conversations, really kind of two key, three key kinds. One is conversations where something has to happen. Like we cannot just be talking anymore. We have to make something really occur. The second is any conversation where there's a difference in the room. People don't look like you or, or don't feel like they're, they're the same. And that's often one of the things that really triggers fear, right? Is, yeah. uh, is, is the fear of difference. And then frankly, the third one is just like the ones that make you afraid. So it's like the ones where you have like a pit in your stomach, you know, where you're like, we, I I mean, I'll be really honest with you. My husband and I are talking about having a kid and I'm in my early fifties, but it's like, um, I'm like, we have to have this conversation because it's like, I just can't not have it. You know, so we had to really, we had to construct the way we could do that conversation in a way that would feel safe for both of us. So, so it's surprising the places where you realize that you have to be, you want to be creative so you can actually kind of feel unfettered and, 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 and less fearful about the conversations you're going to have in your head. And the creativity is passion. You know, that, that energy is something that is very fiery to me. It, it, like I have the vision of a pilot light, you know, like that yeah. just that grows and recedes and grows and recedes and it's reciprocal. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to say because like we're we're actually building a game right now and we're calling it Campfire. Um, and it's similar. It's like we're kind of we're thinking about like the game is kind of working in an ember stage to kind of a steady burn to like actually what happens when it's like a full on bonfire, you know, and then finally back down to to ashes. And and yeah, I think that's kind of true. And one of the reasons. So you know, the final chapter is on creation. It's called Create, which in a normal life that would be what I would usually start with. Um, but one of the things I love about creating is that when you create together, you don't even need to have a conversation. Like, because the passion of working together, making something together, is in fact communing in a really significant way. And so it's like that kind of like, it's the secret bypass, which is like, if you can't talk, then make something with somebody. And um, and that's helpful. It's super helpful. And when we talk about like the drivers of human happiness, right? being connection, you know, good, healthy, social, connected relationships and the challenges that people have had in this past year. And then, you know, even years prior, you can go back for the last handful of years, which have been challenging for a lot of people and a lot of families. This notion of just, well, if you just shut up and make something, (laughs) you know, No, that's exactly right. Well, I mean, and that's what's so funny is that the origin of this work, I mean, the origin is like a lifetime of work, I guess, but the origin of this work actually came out of work I was doing with the then Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, who's now the Surgeon General again. And it was really to focus on issues of anxiety and loneliness because he really believed that was at the core of the opioid addiction um, epidemic. He believed it was the core of gun violence. And um and he wrote a book and I wrote a book at the same time is his about like isolation and how to get through isolation and me about how to have connection and make, make human connections. And so the reality is what seems like a really timely topic, this was, this was like in the making five years ago because it, it felt like, it felt like it was really pressingly as pressing then as it is now. Well, you, if you look at the work, for example, of Johan Hari, you know, who has one of the probably all time most uh, viewed TED talks about the opposite of uh, everything you thought you knew about addiction is wrong. Right. right. And, and he's saying that the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And it's, and it's, it's so funny because, you know, you and I both live in rural contexts and, and, one of the things that I think, you know, I, I had a really interesting conversation with the National Institute of Health, um, um, NIH, and they were they were talking about 
like how to help opioid addiction, like how to help people have, have opioid addiction. They're like, don't worry, it's going to be all technology enabled. It's going to all be happening through your app. And I'm like, yeah, you haven't, <laughs> you don't live where I live, where yeah. technology happens in the library. So I promise you someone who's struggling with addiction isn't going to be in the public library, like kind of like wanting to kind of be helped through some app. Like it needs to be through human connection. You know, that's, that's the way we have to be solving. These yeah. Problems. It's, it's the, it's the conversations and the meaning making out of the difficult, difficult things that have happened in our lives that you can only sort of sort through that by having these sort of intimate, deep conversations with others. It's, it's true. And it's like, you know, and I'll, I'll sorry, I'll go on and on about the, about the rural, like the, the joy of being in a rural context. But one of my first friends when we moved here was in fact, our contractor. And it really matters when you, cause you're, you know, a rural context and when you're like, there's flies everywhere. And he's like, it's just that time of year, you know? Yeah, like, right. Okay. It is what it is. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, and he like, so, and it was really interesting at some point he, um, he turns out he was selling, um, and he went to prison. And I remember like, we, but we had such a close relationship that he like, he wrote me a letter from prison because we were about to do some work on our house. And he was like, would you ever consider hiring me back? Um, and I was sitting there being like, I know this guy. I love this guy. We're against recidivism. And I was like, yeah, of course, come back and like, and do the work. You know, it's like, so it's like, I think that it's like, but it's only because like we had this kind of tight bond early on and then, and, and kind of really reflecting on that bond and our own values. And I was like, why am I can't, I can't be against this in the abstract and not also be, for and be, and like be against it in the person, my personal life as well. So yeah, it's, well, it's interesting you talk about the rural context. You know, as as two people having a conversation who have spent a large part of our lives on in big cities on the coast, and then to come to a small town and in, engage with people and build these relationships, I I see that there is a missing piece uh, mm. in the big cities, it, like. This is uh, this is more real on a certain level. It's not an, an easier life, I think, for people that live in a rural environment, but it's definitely a richer life. It's a slower life. I, I mean, I you know what's funny about that is that early on, because it's like because it, I you know I moved from L.A. to New York, and I was like, oh, I'm such a Angelino, and then I'm like, oh no, I'm so New York. I love the speed of New York, and then I came here, and I was like. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> I basically was like, I was like, you just don't go into a store and like buy something. You go into a store and you have a 20 minute conversation, you know, and it's like, and like, and people want to know, like, what do you know? And like, you, you learn the, you learn the nuance of not saying people's names, right? And like, but, but still kind of alluding to stuff. But there's a, there's a commitment to really having even light conversation, but that, that, that allows us then in the long runs to have bigger and heavier conversations in a rural context. I, I think there's a, you and I discussed this a little bit, but I think this blur between rural and urban is so good for us right now. I think it's going to be, and I mean, for all of us, not, not just like you and I, I think, I think, I think for the communities that are, that are here as well. Well, I think there are a lot of, well, not, I think I have read and, and see some of the research about people who are, leaving large cities and going to smaller rural environments, going to smaller cities. You know, there are, there are people who are taking into consideration climate, being a climate refugee. They mm -hmm. can no longer live in a coastal area where the water table is rising. And so they're moving truly to higher water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
No, it's it's a it's a it's a thing. I mean, I think I told you that like we we live part of our time on an island in Maine, and I, um, at some point I was like, we'll never we will never be underwater because we're 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 kind of like at high ground, but but our road will be. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, okay, at some point, at some point, we're going to be our own island, and I'm like, I just hope I, I'm ready for when that happens. Do you so, have a kayak? But it's. <laughs> We have we have we have more. Believe me, it's you have like, all the toys. <laughs> it's like it's like I, I love I love a boat, but it's like a, um. So, but but I I think I think you're right. I think that the, that we're discovering kind of like the new pleasures of kind of like that kind of existence, and I think it's going to be really good for us in the long run. Um, I, I think it already has been good for us, to be honest. Well, it reduces stress. I, I don't know about you, but I find that, that, that life is a lot less stressful, even though it's not necessarily easier. You know, it's a more physical right. life because you're tending to your property. If you're a gardener, you have crops or you have animals. There is sort of the, the busy work of living a rural life. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I mean, it's like I, I, during my lunch break, I was like, I'm going to go clear out our, we have an outdoor shack that we sit in most of the summer. And I was like, oh, we, now we have wasps. I guess so perhaps we got to deal with wasps. But then like, it's like in the world of stresses, there, there are worse things than a, than a nest of wasps. Although not, you know, that's actually can be pretty stressful. Yeah. A, ne- a nest of wasps are a little bit stressful. And we have a couple in our house, you know, because we've been in and out doing stuff, getting our little it's outdoor season. club yeah, quarantine set up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. It's like, so I was like, tonight we're going to eat in the summer shack. And I was like, oh, guess not. The wasps are going to eat in the summer shed. So that's just the way it is. But yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the book for a second because this, you know, making meaningful conversation, you talk about also the commitment. And I would love for you to elaborate on that because one does not um, necessarily think of the C word in relationship to conversation. Yeah, and you know, I'll be really honest. So, um, originally, a, a book like this goes through multiple iterations and multiple titles. Like your publisher is never happy with your title. And um, there's a period where the book was called the Conversation Palette, um, and the idea was that basically each chapter had its own palette, in, in addition to like a color that went with it, um, that kind of like um, kind of played out um, the different elements of conversation. And what was interesting about that is that I remember giving a lecture in San Francisco for Aspen. And at that point, there were only six chapters, six palettes. And I put up the six palettes and it's this slide that everybody took pictures of. So you knew it was like, it was really clicking. And I get to the end of my talk and somebody raises their hand and they're like, yeah, I don't buy this. And I was like, okay, well, that's helpful. Like walk me through that. And he's like, well, my biggest issue is people coming at me and knowing they already don't like me and kind of being like, I hate you. I don't want to talk to you right up front. Um, I was, and I was like, oh, well, that's real, right? I mean, especially given the political climate that we're in and, and the kind of the foment that the news, you know, the news likes to kind of like build, but it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a real thing. And I was like, boy, how do I answer that? And I was like, oh, well, what you need to do is commit first to the people and the conversation and hold your values in, in check, which was very counterintuitive. Yes. But, I got to interrupt you because you got to hold your hold your thought for one second. We got to take sure. a break. I just looked at my timer and I'm like, whoo, I'm out there. Let's let's pause. Oh. <laughs> we'll take a break. And we'll I'll, have, I'll have a Cheeto. I'll, have a perfect. Cheeto at the pause um, <laughs> to learn more about Fred Dust's work. Please visit makingconversation.com on Twitter, F underscore Dust and on Instagram, FD Brave. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that really is a promise. That is a commitment. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com. 
and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back talking about multiple intelligences, creating a connected society and culture. Let's get back to the conversation about meaningful conversation with my guest, Fred Dust. So Fred, prior to the break, when I so rudely interrupted your stream of consciousness, we were talking about commitment and commitment to the conversation. And I would love for you to pick up there. Yeah. And so as I was sort of saying, like I've been, I've been kind of challenged by somebody who was like, well, I don't think this stuff works. And I was like, well, the first thing that we have to do is commit to the people in the conversation and, and commit to the conversation in itself and kind of hold your values in check a little bit. And that might seem counterintuitive because we're sort of taught to kind of like think values first. Um, but the point for me with conversation is like, we're not always trying to change someone's mind. We're trying to just get to know somebody better and better. And in the long run, that might mean a change happens in our relationship or in the ways people think. But the near-term goal is to say, let's get to know you as an individual. Let's get to know you as a person. And my perspective around that it actually comes from really having a situation where my my mom had a stroke when I was 24, and it suddenly became very difficult for her to have the kind of conversations that she used to have. And my realization at that point was, wow, like, it's like, you lose that and you lose so much. And so I've been sort of feeling like my whole life has been endlessly in pursuit of having the next interesting or not interesting or, you know, funny or, or whatever, or sad conversation and learning more about the people around me. So it's a, um, but, but commitment really helps. Um, it really, and, and one thing that I often say to people is if you're not feeling commitment, and you're not feeling like people are really helping you make sure that you have the conversation you want to have, then don't commit. Like if you're feeling like you're on your own, you know, committing, yeah. then then consider stepping out. And I'll give you an example. I I had taken a job that wasn't on paper, what wasn't in real life what it looked like on paper. And I was scheduled to go into my for my first all board, all staff meeting the day before I'd like I I I you know, you know, I'd flown into the Bay Area to to do this. And I was like, hey, there's some things here where you guys were not honest. Like, it's like we're we're not kind of seeing eye to eye. And I was like, I'll go to this meeting and we can talk about it. But I need to have a full commitment that that your guys are committed to me and I'm, you know, I'm committed to you. And I need a plan. I need a plan in place to make sure that that feels fair and safe for me. And they were like, you don't need a plan. Like, you're just like so charming. Just go be charming. And I was like, that's not a plan. And I'm not going. And, and I didn't go and I, wow. I resigned from the job because I was like, I was like, just relying on me being like, hopefully charming that day is not enough. That's like way too much for me to bear as a, as a, as an individual. And so as often as I tell people to commit, I'm like, if you can't, and if you're not feeling safe, then don't, you know, it's like, it's, it's okay to sort of step out of a conversation. And, and how does one do that artfully? You know, how does one do that? Because you might have to be in in relationship or have that person in your orbit. What's a safe way to do that? To bow out? 
Yeah, I mean, yes and no. You know, it's it's sort of funny. I th- I think that it's. I mean, there's certain people like there are family members and there and there are, there are people who are like who are old friends and 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 people that that you want to kind of keep engaged with. They're your employees or your employers and things like that. And 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 that means that we have to make all kinds of different plans. And you know, the premise of the book is not like, hey, here's how to do it. Here's the methodology. It's more to be like. Here's a bunch of different ways one can do it. What? How do you do it? Like, what's what's what 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 inspires you to make good conversation happen? Um, but it's a great example where, like, back during the kind of height of the first wave of the pandemic, right during like all of the strife we were ha- having, um, people were always asking, like, what if I can't have a conversation with my father-in-law? And that's when I would say, like, we'll go learn golf from your father-in-law. You know, it's like it's like so. Don't don't have a conversation. I just like go. He likes to golf. Go go learn to play a golf. You know, so it's like um. So I think that's where the doing together can help. But yeah. you know, to be really honest, there are multiple moments over this last year where old friends we could not come to agreement on the right ways to conduct ourselves, and they are not friends anymore. Like I, I I broke up with people who I was just like. Yeah, you can tell me I'm afraid all 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 you want, but the truth is, I'm afraid and I don't trust you. <laughs> it's like so. It's like it's like you know you can't you can't force me to to you know come over to your house. You know it's just the way it is. So, so, so I don't know. There's the, there's a range. Yeah, there is there is a range, and I think it's a, you know you you spoke about values in the first segment, and maybe it's a little bit of finding you know the the Venn diagram where there's a crossover, and that's the the zone in which that conversation starts and then maybe yeah. it gets to expand. That's a great point, which is, I think it's like, there's like, I, I really, I talk a lot about the power of a very short, very personal story that kind of uses, like it illustrates your values um, or illustrates something you feel really strongly about. And I think I use that quite a bit. I also, I mean, it's why I say like make a plan together. I say it's like why set rules together. I mean, just to give you context, gay man growing up in the eighties, if I had been w- with everybody who, if I slept with everybody just to be explicit, and I mean, I, I think we can do that on, on public radio. Um, I who'd said, trust me, I'd be, um, I'd be dead, right? Like or super like, sick. Like, yeah, or super sick. And so basically, like, like, like people who are like, just like, you have to trust me. I'm like, that's just not enough. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and so I think that's a, it's an interesting moment where, you know, I, when I committed until I couldn't anymore. And then I was like, yeah, I can't, I can't go any further without feeling unsafe. So. As as yeah. you speak, I'm I, I'm thinking about um, going back to my graduate school days, and my training was in a very humanistic approach to psychology. And I'm thinking about the work of Carl Rogers, who talked about unconditional positive regard as being the premise for really it's any relationship. In in his context, it was the therapeutic relationship between counselor and, and client, but having that unconditional regard for another person, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what their experience of is, you just say, because you exist, you are worthy. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know if you know, but I'm a radical fan of Carl Rogers. and his I work. didn't know and, that. And one yeah, more, and in, check one more yeah. box between Fred and Lisa. <laughs> in, fa- in, fa- in fact, one of my pet peeves is, is when I see Rogerian, 
um, therapies because he had multiple therapeutic methodologies. But when I see Rogerian therapies being misused in the wrong context, so, you know, Carl Rogers invented or is, is kind of largely attributed like to the invention of what we often consider to be modern therapy, which is kind of an active listening. You know, his belief yes. that like you, you couldn't as a therapist necessarily apply Freud to everybody or apply Jung to everybody. So you needed people to kind of self-cure. And so that's why he would, he was really fond of kind of having open-ended like you would say you're depressed and I, and I would say, well, why, why are you depressed? And you'd say, I'm depressed because I don't have a goal. And I'm like, well, why can't you set a goal? Like, and it's, it's called active listening. And I love that within the sense of a, of a good therapeutic context where it goes bad is in human resources or when it's a boss doing that to somebody who works for them. Or, you know, it's like there are places where a lot of his, his great therapeutic, um, um, uh, kind of, atri- um, uh, therapies have been, I think, misapplied in, in, in kind of modern workplaces. So, so it's really interesting. Like I, I write a lot about him. I, I write, like the book, by the way, is, was 500 pages. It's now 200. Um, there was a lot about, about Carl and the, and the range of the work he did and, and, and actually some of the places where he's, he has been misused in the time in the past. So. But it does speak to one thing I think that we can agree upon when it comes to human connection, that when somebody feels seen, heard, and understood, it is almost the feeling, or it may be the feeling for some, of love. And oh not God. not right romantic there. love, but of love. Yeah, no, I, I, like, there's a very, um, there was a presidential candidate, and she and I got in a massive fight because she was, she was confident that I was using the word love wrong because she believes she owns the word. And, um. Oh, no, and, um, I know who it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know who it is, but I still won't say the name. But no, the reality, no, we're not like, saying the name. Like, yeah, it's like, I was, I was in this big conference and I was talking about love, and she was like, you're using it wrong. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I sort of, with my designers, I used to be like, we're going to start with love because we won't get to empathy if you can't start there. And like what, what you'd notice is that when designers didn't love the people they were designing for, they didn't do good work for them. Yes, and so it, for yes. me, it's right. Right. It's like, so you kind of have to love somebody and, so, and again, not necessarily romantic love, but love to actually kind of be able to kind of make sure that you're like, you're doing the best by them that you can. And maybe that's part of the commitment angle it too. Is, it is. I also want to point out something that you did really skillfully, which I really love, which is, you know, I have a chapter called creative listening. And the whole point is like, active listening isn't enough, you need other kinds of listening. And one of the things I talk about is that people seem afraid often when they're listening to kind of to then also make connections to other experiences I have. So I was talking about something, you made a connection to Carl Rogers, and then that made a stronger connection between you and I. So some people might be like, oh, well, that's like she was thinking about something else while she was, t- while she was talking. I was like, that's exactly the right kind of listening is like where you're kind of like listening to me and you're listening to something that's stirring in yourself. And you're like, wait a second, there's an interesting connection here. And it makes it, it deepens the relationship. And that's that's a good kind of listening is where you're listening to both yourself and what you're feeling and what that person is saying at the same time. That's a good point, because I felt as you were talking and I was f- feeling what you were saying that I was with you. And Carl right. Rogers came as an extension of being with you. Yeah, and then you brought Carl into the room, which is awesome. So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's 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 and that that's part of it is like too often we think of listening as a passive act. You know, it's like if you Google listening in a classroom, it's like kids holding their hand up. You know, it's like and and that's waiting. That's not the same as kind of like actively engaging in what somebody's saying, which yeah. I think is really what creative listening is. 
Listening is big work, and maybe it is the the biggest work of making conversations, you know? Well, it's funny. When I wrote the book, when I wrote the first chapter, which was on listening, everyone was like, it's just a whole book on listening. And I was like, I think there's more that we can write about. But what's interesting about that is that um, it's in, what's interesting is also that we often use punitive terms when we talk about listening. So you'll hear a boss say, I'm going to go give everybody a good listening to, or I talked to a mayoral candidate who's also a presidential candidate, his campaign people, and I was like, the town halls don't have to be just him hearing, you know, anger. They, they can be more cathartic, and they're like, no, he just needs to give them. He just he has to, he needs just to be giving them, giving them a good listening to. So, which really sounds like that sounds like you're punishing somebody. It sounds like you're like you're spanking them. You know, it's like, and I think a lot of the language we use to frame up listening makes it sound like it's something that's really hard that we don't want to do that. Um, Whereas if we do it right, it should feel like it's the most joyful. I mean, yes. you, you, get, you get to do this. That's what you get to do. You know, it's like, it's like listen and engage with people. And like, I can't imagine you're finding that like so boring that you want to like, you know, ditch the show. I'm a lucky cricket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I feel like. I'm, I'm, I feel pretty lucky that I get to listen and communicate as my livelihood, as my way of being in the world. You know, I get to show up. That's, yeah. that's pretty, pretty dang special. I think that's exactly right. So yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm all for the way you think about listening. It's, it seems exactly right to me. You and I have more listening and talking to do. To learn more about Fred Dust and his work, please visit makingconversation.com. The book we've been speaking about today is Making Conversation, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication. To connect with Fred on Twitter, please do so at F underscore Dust. And on Instagram, it's F D brave Fred you and I have more hanging out to do <laughs> I, well in person in person not that far. yes <laughs> so I'll, I'll see you soon I can't see you, wait see you soon here comes the break we'll be right back did you know that happiness is actually good for your health happy people live longer are more productive and make better partners parents and professionals connect with us on Facebook at harvesting happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're talking about multiple intelligences creating a connected society and culture. My next guest is Dr. Tom Herr. Dr. Tom Herr led schools for 37 years and is the emeritus head of the New City School. He is a scholar in residence at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, teaching in the Educational Leadership Program. His newest book, Taking Social Emotional Learning School-Wide, The Formative Five Success Skills for Students and Staff, shows how school culture can be a tool for implementing SEL. Tom, welcome to the show. This couldn't be a better conversation to be having. It might be a little bit late, but there's a lot that we can learn from this moving forward. Well, thanks, Lisa. It's it's wonderful to be here, and I'm biased. I'm an educator, but it seems to me the more we focus on kids in school and education, the better it is. I agree. Um, my sister, with whom I'm very close, is a, a teacher and an early childhood interventionist specifically for autism. And she has spent the last year really honing in on this subject matter. And she and I were recently together and we were talking about how school got it all wrong this past year. 
Well, I, th I think I think that's fair. And let me let me kick it up a bit, if I might. Um, I would argue, and I, and I don't want to be unfair to educators. I'm one. We work hard. We work too hard. But it seems to me what, what has happened with the pandemic is it's caused us to step back and not just look at, gosh, what should we have been doing differently since COVID hit? We ought to be saying, what should we be doing different in general? Uh, how should education have been designed yeah. differently? When we go back, let's not go back to the same old, same old. Let's look at how children learn and base schools on that rather than how we teach. Well, you know, when we look at um, how education was done in this past year, it wasn't all bad. I think those programs that really encouraged um, development of emotional and social intelligence, those programs that encouraged experiential learning and really maybe encouraged students to play a little bit more, those kids did better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think what has happened is that, you know, this is a, a terribly harsh statement. But when you look at how schools design or how schools are designed, there's a strong correlation with how prisons are designed. You know, you've got, these tiles, you've got classrooms um, and, and, and that's a, that's a snide comment. But what I'm really trying to get at is for too long, we just assumed that kids were conscripted. They didn't have any choice. They came and, you know, uh, imagine the bell shaped curve. There's a third on the right and they do well in school from a multiple intelligences perspective. They're linguistic and they're logically, mathematically talented. Uh, they do well on tests. And for them, school's fine. Then there's this group in the middle and they kind of hang out and, and, and maybe they get excited about something and maybe a teacher uh, really turns them on and that's good. And then there's the, the, the other group, the kids at the bottom, uh, whose intelligence is, if you will, whose, whose background maybe don't make school a, a productive place. But the bottom line is we just put everybody in that cell and we move forward. And I think what COVID has taught us is that kids should be excited about learning and teachers should be figuring out how do these kids learn rather than teaching the way they were taught. When we talk about the multiply intelligent student, talk a little bit more about what that means, because there, there are many layers of intelligence. You touched upon it in describing, you know, sort of the thirds of the bell curve. But some of us might not understand what that really means. Sure, sure. Well, in, in 1983, Howard Gardner, who was a professor at Harvard University, wrote a book called Frames of Mind, and it really uh, tossed the education world kind of on its ear. And basically what Howard did is said that you define intelligence as problem solving. And there's lots of problems which aren't solved with a pencil and a paper, uh, which aren't solved through reading something. And he came up with the theory of multiple intelligences. Initially, he identified seven intelligences linguistic, logical, mathematical, but also musical, spatial, bodily kinesthetic, and then the personal intelligences, intrapersonal and interpersonal, and later the naturalist. So there's eight intelligences. And for, for too long, when you say somebody's intelligent, they're smart, we typically think, oh, they're reading right well. But the reality is, if you look at people who succeed in the world, absolutely reading and writing well is, is an asset and it's very helpful. But there are other people who do very well who aren't particularly skilled in that. Architects often uh, aren't great readers or writers. They're remarkably talented spatially. If you look at a musician, um, if you look at somebody who's great with animals or great with a garden, and in our world, of course, the scholastic intelligence, as I call them, linguistic, logical, mathematical, those most often lead to remuneration, to making good salaries. 
So there's a hierarchy. But Gardner said, hold on a second, these are all intelligences. And, and what we shouldn't do is say, oh, he's intelligent and she's talented because uh, there's a hierarchy there. Well, he wrote the book, as I said, in 83. The school that I ran at the time, the New City School in St. Louis, really got excited about this because what we saw was that multiple intelligences offered more ways for kids to learn. So we basically configured our school around MI, multiple intelligences. Kids still learned how to read and write and calculate. Absolutely, that has to happen. But we also said, if the goal is for children to learn about the Civil War, for example, how can we allow them to use their other intelligences in learning about that? So if you came to one of my fifth grade classrooms, uh, there would be times when kids were reading and writing and uh, you know, we taught them when to use a colon and a semicolon, but there would also be times when they would be building models or maybe doing a timeline of a graphic chart on a big piece of paper. And, and what we found is that all of a sudden, instead of a class having an academic hierarchy, uh, everybody was learning and kids were enjoying learning and they were excited about it. Uh, one of the terms I use when I visited schools back then and now when I do it at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, uh, where I'm supervising students who want to be principals, is I talk about the happiness, happiness quotient. When you walk in a school, there ought to be smiles. And those smiles don't mean that uh, people aren't learning or it's not rigorous. What they mean is that they're enjoying being there. And they're enjoying being there, A, because they feel valued as a human being, and B, because they're succeeding. And the reason they're succeeding is the school is looking at how they learn, looking at their talents, and capitalizing on them. And I would also venture to say that the kids are feeling satisfied in their environment, that there's something about the place, specifically of the place of school, that contributes to it. Totally, totally. Uh, the, the last book that I wrote, the one, the one to which you referred, Taking Social and Emotional Learning School-Wide, I used the model of culture as a framework to look at how we, how we teach kids social emotional learning. And one of the aspects of that about which I wrote is place. And what that says is that we can learn a lot from place, and too often we don't think about that. Now, let me tell you, if you walk in a supermarket, they have thought about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where are the products? What's placed at eye level? Where the signs are? You know, you walk in and, you know, there are the, the sweet tooth things while you're susceptible. But too often in institutions, we don't do that. Um, and I would argue that when you walk in a school, for example, often we'll say, oh, that really felt good. And we say it felt good because there was lots of kids' artwork and papers up. And that's great, semicolon, however, comma. A problem is too often the stuff that's hanging in the hall, as wonderful as it is, only represents the top 20% of the kids. Uh, every child doesn't have that opportunity. And I'm going to argue that if you want that happiness quotient to be high, every child needs to be valued. And part of that is a physical environment. There ought to be places for every kid to show that she's excelling, that she's interested, that he's doing well. Um, classrooms ought to have family photos or have kids draw them, however that family is defined, so that when a kid goes in the building, they say, this is my place, I feel safe here, I feel valued here. And if that happens, they're going to smile. And if that happens, they're much more likely to learn. And what role does having happy teachers, principals, and administrators play in modeling that behavior for students? Absolutely. I mean, good point. Great point. Um, I talk about developing social emotional learning in, in students. And I say, because I'm writing two principles, and I'll say to them, but we cannot leapfrog the teachers. 
Uh, if you're going to work on developing empathy in your school with your students, which I would argue, by the way, we should all be doing. But if you're going to do that, then your teacher's empathy should be increasing, as should yours. Uh, we're all part of a family in a school. We're all part of a team. Uh, we don't teach social emotional learning to children. We develop it with them. So we all improve. We all gain. During the pandemic, I was speaking with a friend of mine who is a school administrator, and she was telling me about the resistance that many of the teachers had to moving to Zoom and a sense of apathy and dread at having to pivot, that they didn't feel that they got paid enough or they were nearing the ends of their careers, you know, one or two years from retirement. Why now? Why me? And how that infected the kids negatively. Yeah, yeah. And, and the first thing I would say is they were right that they didn't get paid enough, but I would say that's true in general. Of course, uh, that's, be, that's, that's a given. <laughs> They're not paid enough. Pre-pandemic. And, and I think to be fair in these teachers' uh, defense, if you will, because again, I'm teaching at the university and many of my students are teachers. Uh, many of them, most of them were not prepared for this. Nobody talked with them about how it might be done. Uh, that doesn't even speak to the fact that for many folks, technology wasn't there. Technology didn't work. It wasn't in their kids' home. T to me, you cannot replace being in a classroom. There's an excitement. There's a synergy that's really wonderful. But that's not the question. The question is, if you were going to wind up actually teaching through Zoom, then what we need to do is prepare teachers to be successful doing that. Uh, I'm doing that now with my university kids, kids my university students, and, and it's different, but it seems to me that it simply means we need to step back and think, how do people learn? What can we do? How can we use this new tool? Because I think Zoom, I think remote instruction, virtual instruction is here to stay. In St. Louis, where I live, a couple of the large school districts have already said publicly that they are assuming post-pandemic that as many as 20 to 25 percent of their families are going to choose to be educated virtually. Yeah. Because you know, of, higher education, yeah, that's going to be a factor. So that's going to be here. And and as it should, but it, we, we need to adapt the teaching style and the methodology to meet these kids where they're at and give them the most robust, well-rounded experience possible, which I, I believe it's possible. I believe that the technology is there to do that. And then there's something else I want to talk to you about, which is the experiential aspect, but we need to take a break. And when we come back, I will continue the conversation. We're talking about Tom Herr's book, Taking Social Emotional Learning School. Why? To learn more about Tom's work, please visit thomasrher.com. Once again, that's thomasrher.com. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
Welcome back. Let's carry on the conversation with Dr. Tom Herr. We're talking about multiple intelligences, creating a connected society and culture. Let's get back to it. Tom, let's touch upon, you know, the Zoom or the remote learning being here to stay. On the break, you mentioned that I think you said 20 to 25% of the population in your area wants to stay on this remote path to learning, which makes sense because it does work better for some families. And I wanted to bring in the other angle of experiential learning and how you can keep it as a teacher, keep it interesting, relevant, and engaging, even though you might be learning in a remote environment. Yeah, let, let me jump in. And let me let me back up if I might, Lisa. Please. You, you, you talked about multiple intelligences, and we we kind of buzz through that. And let me just step back because often, and I've I've traveled around the world talking about MI. Often there's a, a questioning or a cynicism among adults because that isn't how we were taught to view intelligence and. What I will often say to people, and I'll say it now to the folks listening to the show, is if you take a second and write down the initials of three people you know, people who you know personally, who you consider really successful, and people do that. And then I'll ask, after I've talked about multiple intelligences, which intelligences do they exhibit the most? Well, what we find is that in the real world, people with lots of different intelligences succeed. And again, that argues to me to doing that at more in school. So to come back to schools, um, to clarify what, what I said is in some of the school districts, not all of them, they are talking about 20 to 25 percent of the families choosing to continue learning remotely. And I think it's probably going to be the same in higher education as well. And when we talk about kids being active learners, we need to figure out how they can do that. Um, one of the things that I've done, and this, this is a bit a way of, of breaking the ice, if you will, and if any of your listeners are teaching remotely, uh, before the first class, before many classes, I will say to folks, hey, we're going to begin by screen sharing. Pick a photo that you want to let us know about you. Well, I got to tell you, Lisa, it is fascinating. I did this last summer with 33 graduate students from around the country. Some people showed us photos of their pets, their dogs on vacation. But it was a way of, of if you will, engendering that warmth, that nice feeling of happiness in a remote world that we sometimes get in classrooms. Um, I've also had teachers talk to me about having their kids build projects at home, take a photo of it with, with your phone, screen share it, show it there, what does that look like? I've also had teachers talk to me about having kids do scavenger hunts in the house. So, you know, you're, you're teaching third graders or second graders or whatever, and you want them to, to learn alphabets, you want them to learn things, you can say, okay, here's what I want you to do. Um, take your first name, take the letter of, of each one of the letters of your first name. You've now got five minutes. Find something in your house that begins with that letter. Well, what happens uh, if you're teaching kids alphabet, if you're teaching them letters, that's a great activity. But for all kids, it gets them up, it gets them moving, it gets them out. Yeah. Uh, so those are the kinds of things I think that good teachers have always done. Teaching is a creative profession, and simply Zoom is another obstacle, if you will, that we need to figure out how to move over and around to get kids learning. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking about the scavenger hunt, thinking that would work for adults even. <laughs> it would be yeah. great. <laughs> it would, yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, it's a fun kind of thing. It's not something you would do at, at home, at school, but you would do, do at home. Another thing I've had teachers talk to me about is too often, and I get this, uh, they'll sign on, the kids are there, but their cameras aren't on. 
and, and I understand there, there's a there's a privacy issue. Sometimes kids are reluctant. Um, teachers don't say you've got to turn on your camera. They want to encourage them. So one of the teachers told me that what she had done was ask the kids to, to tell her their favorite song, you know, send them an email. And then she created a soundtrack of songs. And so when class would begin, she would have one of those songs playing. Kids didn't know who it was. And she would say, okay, here's a song. If you think you know whose song that is, turn on your camera and tell me. Well, that's the kind of things kids loved. Yeah. Of course, if you the song that is, you're really going to get excited. And there's nothing profound about that. It's the kind of thing that good teachers have done every year, every week, uh, finding ways to be creative and help kids learn. Well, in essence, a, a teacher is a leader. You know, a teacher is modeling the behavior that we would like to see in the world. And I'm wondering um, how leaning into the challenges of the past year impacts the teaching experience. In other words, asking kids to tell their COVID story, like what was the, the hardest thing that you had to learn during COVID? And what was the best thing you learned about yourself? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's an excellent idea. My, my worry, candidly, and I've given you some ideas uh, that things teachers could do, and I've got more. But my worry is that no matter how well teachers do it, uh, and they will do it well because teachers are remarkable, it, it it isn't as pleasurable, if you will. One of the things teachers love is seeing that smile on a kid's face and being able to give that kid a hug. Uh, the teachers I know, that that's why they work. Yes. They don't work for salary, obviously. They work <laughs> that's true. The, the intrinsic motivation. And, and no matter how well you're doing it, it's a screen. And so I worry that teachers are working harder than ever before. Um, kids are learning with an additional challenge. And it's not as rewarding for the teachers as it was. And so if I was leading a school today, I would be thinking, what can I do to make sure my teachers know how important they are, to feel how valued they are, and to leave uh, work every night to turn off their computer every night and turn it on the next morning with a smile. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a circular loop, right? The teacher shows up and is the, the, the modeler, the feedback loop that the kid gives the teacher then allows the teacher to power down at night, knowing that they've done their job well yes. and joyfully. So yes. it, we need, we need one another, right? The students need the teacher and the teacher needs the students. Yep, yep. And again, I'm hopeful that once COVID is over, you know, when when that happens, and it will happen, that once it's over, we are able to say, gosh, uh, we're starting new. What, what what do we want to do differently? Let's just not step back and do things the way we used to do it. Um, let's begin by saying, how do kids learn? And now that we know that, how should we tailor how schools are run? The idea, for example, and you didn't ask me this, but the idea that you've got high schools and middle schools starting at this ungodly hour, uh, particularly for kids that age. And often the reason they do it is so that the buses are going to be available for sports games after school. Well, hold on a second. Uh, what's really important? Do we want a kid sitting in an English class at 7.40 a.m. so that somebody can play baseball at 2.45 p.m.? Those are the kinds of things that we've just fallen into, and we need to step back and say, wait a minute. If If our goal really is kids succeeding, kids learning, kids being happy, how can we design schools? That's a really good point because the body rhythm of a teenager, right? They, they require more sleep than, than, than their older counterparts or even some of their younger counterparts, right? When the, yep. the, the elementary school age kids, everybody needs good rest, but the high school kids really need extra sleep. 
Yep. And they're probably not in bed asleep by 9.30 p.m. Oh, I'm sure not. <laughs> I, 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 I bet money on that. You are writing another book um, entitled The Principal as CEO, Chief Empathy Officer. And that's coming out in the fall. And I, I see the tie in here as paramount. Yep. Yep. And, and, and it's an evolution of my thinking. And it comes straight from you know, my book, The Formative Five, about social-emotional growth and then taking social-emotional learning school-wide. And what I'm saying here is that good leaders everywhere, and I'm writing to principals, but good leaders everywhere don't lead by command. They don't lead by necessarily being smarter. They lead by caring about the people with whom they work. And by caring about them, they develop empathy for them. They appreciate people's feelings or situations. And then they try to respond by designing work in a way where those people can succeed. One of, one of my favorite quotes, and I've got this in the book, is that empathy is reciprocal. If you have empathy for yeah. other people, they're likely to have it for you. And I think in a school in which the principal is the chief empathy officer, what we're going to find is teachers feeling better about going to work. And as you said wisely a few minutes ago, if teachers are feeling good, that's going to translate to kids feeling good and they're going to learn more. I remember when I was a kid, uh, the principal of my elementary school, he was so warm and so loving. And when he would come around to, uh, you know, the classrooms for a visit, the kids just responded so fabulously to him, you know? Yep. And, and, my, and my guess is if you went to a faculty meeting, the faculty responded equally positively. Yes. And, yes. and again, that that's what we want. We want a building in which when you enter it, Everybody knows they're there to support one another. And again, that doesn't mean a lack of challenge. It doesn't mean kids aren't learning a lot, but it means that what we want are people to succeed rather than create a pecking order. And then what you have as kids grow up and become leaders in their in their own lives and in their own worlds is this legacy, you know, this legacy of joy and, and yep. connection and these multiple intelligences that make for a successful society. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we, we, we teach the way we were taught. When you talk to folks, they will often have these very strong, striking memories, whether they were in third grade or ninth grade or maybe even in college. And too often those strong, striking memories aren't the ones we want. Uh, what I want to do, what you want to do is make sure that school prepares people to succeed in life, not just to do well in school. One, yeah. one of my favorite sayings is who you are is more important than what you know. And I think everybody agrees with that. Then the question is, okay, what do we do to enact that in school? Who you are is more important than what you know. Well, it's the celebration of of the individual and the collective, you know, that you've got all these unique skills that make you you. And then you come together with everybody else that has all these unique and special and different skills. And together, we're working for the greater good. Absolutely. Well put. Yep. And, you know, that's happiness. Yes. You know, when everybody gets to rise together, you know, that nobody is left behind, whether it's in the classroom or in the office, that everybody has the opportunity to thrive and flourish. Yep. And that's the way school should be. It's the way the world should be. Yeah. And that's what we work for every day or work towards every day. I, I feel strongly about that, you know, and we do it in the ways that we can. And, and we all have our little piece of the world, whether it's uh, whether it's your home, uh, the kitchen table, the third grade classroom, uh, the, the, the city, whatever. And what we need to do is say, I know this is what's good for people. 
and I'm going to work toward it. And I'm not going to succeed 100%, uh, but everybody's going to be better because I worked at helping people feel safe, helping people uh, love learning, and helping people know that they're part of a family. Dr. Tom Herr, thanks for firing us up regarding taking social-emotional learning school-wide and back into the world as we emerge from the year of living differently. I think that's putting it mildly. To yep. learn more about Tom Herr's work, please visit thomasherr.com on Twitter at Tom Herr. And I thank you for sharing your wisdom and getting us thinking about, you know, the upside of learning again, getting us excited about getting back to school. And thank you for the invitation. We're all in the same boat and we're moving forward. So this was a fun discussion. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Fred Dust and Dr. Tom Herr, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.